In southern Texas, there's a strip of highway that runs between Houston and Galveston. From the 1970s until today, it's a place where many women and girls have gone missing or were murdered. Most of these crimes are unsolved, and this area has become known as the Texas Killing Fields. But nestled along Interstate 45 in League City, Texas, is a 25-acre field where this name originated. There, between 1984 and 1991, the bodies of four young women were found in this field. Two were identified immediately, but two more spent 30 years known only as Jane and Janet Doe until one day, that changed. This is their story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by guest reader Brianna Evigan. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. So, Vanessa, usually we try to keep our chit-chatting at the beginning to a minimum, and Mm -hmm. that is particularly true today because we have a lot to cover. This episode is part of a larger series on missing and unidentified women along Texas's I-45 highway, mostly in the area between Houston and Galveston. We're going to be covering other stories in the future, but while we wait for some files, we're going to cover some other cases. But we're focusing on this area because this whole part of the country is often referred to as the Texas Killing Fields. Sounds like we're off to a very strong start. Like killing fields for real? For real, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what this is going to bring. We'll see. Yeah. So we're focusing this episode on a specific 25-acre area that was originally called the Texas Killing Fields. But again, sometimes that name is used for the broader area of this part of Texas. So it's interchangeable. Okay. So I'm guessing, is there not a lot of people living in this particular area? Oh, there, there is actually. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just, um, Killy. Definitely. So to really fully understand this episode, I first have to set the stage because this story or rather stories are really interconnected to much broader issues of violence against women in this specific location. And it's also important to note that whole books and documentaries have been done on this topic. So I'm going to try to tell this as concisely as possible but with the understanding that I'm going to try to focus on as much as possible, two specific stories today. One, an unidentified woman who was found in 1986, and the other, an unidentified woman found in 1991. Okay, so when you say that there are just two, and this place is called Texas Killing Fields, how many are we talking? So specifically, this little 25-acre plot of land, it accounts for four murders, But the broader Texas killing fields from Houston to Galveston, we're talking dozens. Dozens. Of missing and murdered women. Okay. So like another Long Island type situation? Um, I think they share some similarities. Yeah, maybe. It's like a small area of land with a lot of, you know, bodies. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. So Southern Texas... Specifically, the stretch between Houston and Galveston that borders I-45 is our center point. It's about 50 miles from Houston down Interstate 45 to get to Galveston, where the highway kind of ends because you hit the Gulf Coast. Largely, this area of Texas was considered an in-between kind of place. You had Houston as a city center, and then Galveston Island, which had a steady population, but was and still is a tourist destination. Between these locations was a series of small towns and larger cattle ranches and farms. We're talking small towns, dirt and shell roads, everyone knows everyone kind of places. In 1948, though, the first sections of I-45, which is also known as the Gulf Freeway, are built near Galveston, and then the sections near Houston are done around 1967. This, along with construction of NASA's Johnson Space Center in the 1960s, fundamentally changed this whole region of Texas. You had booming industries in oil and gas, so like Exxon and BP moving in, and then NASA arrives, so you have people moving in to support those businesses, and then there's an increase in construction, so you have construction businesses moving in as well. So those small towns along I-45 start to change as well. 
People who didn't want to live directly in Houston are moving out to those small towns. Those small towns are growing. And eventually those ranchers and farmers can't hold onto their properties anymore, so they start selling those sections of land, and those are becoming subdivisions. And I promise I am going to circle back to this history throughout the episode and the broader series, but basically you have this 50-mile stretch over three counties that's experiencing rapid growth, and then the abductions and murders start happening. So when you say the abductions and murders start happening, there are local people that are being killed? Yeah, so there's a lot of conversation in here about, like, local versus, like, transient people. Mm -hmm. Like, people are coming in and out of the area. And I think that's an interesting angle that I really want to get into. But for the most part, there is is a large population of women who are local living in that area, so not vacationing there. Who are experiencing this. So it would have been a really scary time to live there. Yeah, but like for the most part, a lot of them didn't even know this was happening because it wasn't like widely publicized, these abductions and murders. It takes a while for them to start to realize that something's going on. Which probably keeps the problem going because nobody knows how careful they should be. Right. So from 1971 to 1978, 11 young teen girls and women are abducted and murdered in the Galveston area. One of the things that's really unusual about those cases is that in many of those, the girls often went missing in pairs. That is really strange. Right. So we always say, like, go with a friend. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to be generous here and say that when those abductions and murders were happening in the 1970s in this section of Texas... Many of the policing agencies were likely unprepared for it initially. Largely, those are considered unsolved because many believe one of the primary suspects who was arrested actually gave a false confession for that specific group of 11. So did that person do anything wrong or was they were they just... People largely believe that he was kind of forced into okay. confessing. But then the decades, they continued and more and more women and girls are going missing or are murdered in this section of Texas. And that excuse that they're just unprepared in this area for those kinds of crimes, like, really starts to wear thin for me. That the police are unprepared? Yeah. How? Because it's like, oh, it's a small town. Like, they haven't dealt with these murders. They haven't dealt with crimes like this before. So they don't know what to do. Isn't that when you bring in other people who do know what to do? Yeah. 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 But that brings us to the 1980s. And we're going to hone in on this 25-acre strip of land off of Calder Road in League City, Texas, which was the original area known as the Killing Fields. The Killing Fields wasn't, of course, always known that. It was once a strip of land that was likely tied to one of the larger ranches in the area. But by the time the 1980s rolled around, I-45 had cut through those ranches and League City sort of sprawled on both sides of the interstate. Calder Road was to the west of the interstate running parallel to it and in between it and the highway are little subdivisions that start building up. This 25-acre slice of land off Calder Road was owned by a petrochemical company and pretty much cut off from those housing developments. In the 1980s, it was often described as remote, but you could see the oil refineries in the distance. It was filled with trees and scrub and tall grasses and ponds. Civilization is, like, just within touching distance, but people who were there in the 1980s and 90s said it felt cut off and, like, no one could hear you out there. Why would you want to live in a place where you feel cut off and, like, no one could hear you? Yeah, well, so this, like, little strip was not, was... It was... So that was not, like, there's not houses there. There's not houses okay. in this 25-acre So people strip. didn't generally go there, did they? Well, this was owned by a petrochemical mm -hmm. company. So they had an oil well on the property. So it was considered, like, a no-go zone in okay, general. Okay, so you didn't need yeah. to be there anyway. Yeah, but, like, you know, everyone... But if you did... If, if you did, it was pretty scary. And mm -hmm. people go kind of... I'm sure, adventuring out. It's like a field. Yeah. Kind of place, right? Don't, don't adventure in this field. Don't. On April 4th, 1984, a homeowner living along Calder Drive sees her dog carrying something in its mouth. This is never a good thing. A dog is never a good thing yeah. in these stories. I mean, the dogs are good. The dogs are, are good boys and girls. They are good boys and girls, but they're usually doing good boy and girl things, which usually means... What is what is this dog carrying, Amy? So it turns out to be a human skull. I knew it. There we go. Yeah. It was going to be some part. Yeah. And when police investigate, 
they extend their search into the nearby humble oil field this 25 acre plot of land and this is about 300 yards away from the family's home there they find the mostly skeletonized remains of a woman her body was underneath a tree and her clothes were found nearby there wasn't a clear-cut cause of death but she did have broken ribs those remains turned out to be 25 year old heidi or Heedy, as her family says, Phi. On October 7th, 1983, Heedy was at her parents' home in League City. She had been living in Houston, but she, along with her six-year-old daughter, had been staying at her parents' place while she recovered from surgery. And she was also working at a local bar called the Texas Moon. How did they find out that it was Heidi? Dental records, I Dental. believe. Okay. Heedy was well-liked, and her mom says that Heedy was outgoing and trusting and never met a stranger. On the night she disappeared, Heedy was supposed to go to Houston to help her boyfriend, Stephen, to move her house trailer from where it was to where her sister lived in Houston. Her dad remembers that he was settling in with a neighbor to watch a ball game when Heedy told him that she was going to hitch a ride to Houston. She said goodbye and then headed to a nearby convenience store on Hobbs and West Main Street to use their payphone. The convenience store worker saw her outside using the payphone. My guess is that she may have been calling someone to get a ride or calling her boyfriend to let him know that she was on the way. But the next day, her boyfriend called her parents because she'd never shown up to help him. Her family immediately knew something was wrong and reported it to the police. From there, it's a bit hard to tell how police handled this situation, but I can tell you that there are no news articles from her disappearance. Apparently, the police told her father it was best if there wasn't any publicity on her case. I disagree. Don't you disagree with that? Like, yeah. I, shouldn't as many people know as possible? Exactly. So this is where we're starting to get into, like, what is going on? And this right? is exactly why other women don't understand what's happening in their area. Exactly. So still, though, her dad, he goes out looking for her. If any of our listeners have seen the documentary crime scene, The Texas Killing Fields on Netflix, you'll know that he would go out regularly, he would interview people about her disappearance, and then he would come home and record his findings on cassette tapes. And he would do this two to three times a day. He even went so far as to run a small ad in the Houston papers, despite the police telling him to keep her disappearance quiet. He was working hard. Yeah. And when her body was found six months later and they identify her, like, I've only found a brief article that ran in the paper reporting on it. They only talked about it once they had identified her? Yeah, it really was, like, it really was kept pretty quiet. Again, this doesn't mean that maybe news channels on television weren't covering it. We don't have access to those, but I do know that the papers really weren't talking about it. Mm. Heidi had been found... In April of 1984, and that same year, on September 10th, Laura Miller disappeared in League City. Laura was 16 that year. Her family had moved from Ohio to Dickinson, Texas several years before, and her father, Tim, started one of those construction businesses I mentioned earlier. Laura struggled a bit with school. When she was 11, she'd gotten sick, and that illness had caused scarring on her brain, resulting in seizures. Because of that, she was placed in special education classes and was just generally unhappy with the situation. Her family said that she started skipping school and smoking pot. In the summer of 1984, to kind of combat this, her family made a decision to move from Dickinson, Texas, to League City. Now, like, this is only a move of a few miles, but the move placed Laura into a new school system so that she could kind of start over. On September 10th, Laura wanted to call her boyfriend, Vernon. Her plan was to invite him over to the house that evening. The phone still hadn't been set up in the Miller house yet, so she walked to the nearest convenience store on the corner of Hobbs and West Main. Now, if you're wondering, this is the same convenience store that Heidi was at and the same payphone as well. Oh, really? So I was going to ask that. But I was thinking maybe, it, you know, that would be a silly question. Like, Because what would the coincidence of that right. be? But it seems kind of obvious now that there's... There's some connection. There's something there, yeah. Yeah, what they didn't know at the time is that Laura and Heidi had actually lived within, like, a few blocks of one another. When Laura went to go use the payphone, her mom saw her walking and gives her a ride to the payphone, but then her mom had to go to work, so Laura told her to, like, just leave her there. Now, I've seen two stories, one that she stays to talk to Vernon on the phone, and one where she actually ends up hanging up the phone and going to his residence and 
he's waiting for someone else so he can't leave his house for a while. In any case, Vernon shows up at the Miller family home that evening without Laura, and that's when everyone realizes that she's missing. The first thought that her family seems to have was that because she has had a history of seizures, that it's possible that she's having a medical event. They called the local hospitals, but she wasn't there. And then when they called the police, the police wanted to treat it as a runaway case. Always, right? It's Always. that age group. Like, yeah. if it's late teens, that's it. It's going to be a runaway. Like, check that box. And we've said this countless times, but it doesn't make sense to brush away runaway cases. Like... That's particularly true for teenagers, but it's even more alarming when it's a teenager with a medical condition. It's not like her family didn't consider the possibility that she could have run away, but she did have a medical condition. And also she made plans with her boyfriend just a few hours before, so. Why would she run away? And if she ran away, wouldn't she run away like with him? Yeah, I mean. Or with somebody or to somewhere, like. She clearly made plans with Vernon because yeah. he shows up at her house, right? Now, her father, Tim, was worried about her seizures in particular and that she was away from home without her medication. But he says an officer brushed him off by saying that Laura was street smart and would be able to figure out how to obtain her medication on her own. How does the officer know his daughter more than he does? Right, and also, sir... She's going to somehow obtain prescription medication on her own on the streets, like street street drug. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like what did? Yeah, because of Heidi, her father specifically asked about the possibility of checking the field where Heidi was found, but he was told that Heidi's death was a one-time thing, and so police weren't going to go look there. And when her father asked Lisa about the possibility of him looking, he was told it was privately owned land, and he couldn't. Sounds like these dads are working hard. Yeah. Yeah. On the afternoon of Sunday, February 2nd, 1986, people riding dirt bikes in the field Heidi was found in, they noticed an odor, and when they felt the smell through the waist-high grass, they found a body. They quickly notified police who discovered the remains of a woman laying face up about 50 yards from where Heidi was found. And as they searched the area, they found the remains of another woman just about 20 yards away. Like Heidi and the other body found that day, she was laying face up. When the League City Police Chief Ron Robolski spoke to the press, he said that he would be contacting both state and national missing persons agencies to see who these two women might be because there were no local or League City cases that seemed to be related to this find. But, but we're looking for one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like they just, that is a bold statement. That is so strange. Yeah. Yeah. They just really go for that. And thankfully, it's not long until the second body found that day was identified as Laura Miller. She, at that point, had been missing for 17 months. 17 months? Holy moly. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the first woman that was found, she was labeled Jane Doe because unlike Laura, there were no reports of a missing woman from League City or the surrounding area matching her description. But I'm guessing now there probably was. Like... <laughs> Like, <laughs> somebody somewhere looking for someone, right? We look harder. She was thought to be between 5'5 five five and 5'8. Five she had reddish-brown hair and a distinctive gap between her front teeth. She'd been shot in the back with a twenty two caliber gun. When no one locally comes forward to say they recognize her, investigators start to believe she's from outside the area. And that's really where a lot gets paused on these cases for several years. They do ask an artist, Stuart Stout, to do a statue reconstruction of Jane Doe, but that doesn't help identify her. It took around until 1989 for the police to release Laura's remains to the Miller family, and she was buried not far from Heidi. Her father, Tim, though, built a wooden cross that they erected where she was found. He made one for Jane Doe as well. It was the only memorial to Jane Doe because her remains were held in evidence. With Heidi, Laura, and Jane Doe found in such a short amount of time in the same place, this 25-acre plot of land, it becomes known as the Killing Fields. It's really sad. It is very sad. Yeah. It's a heavy one. And then on Sunday, September 8th, 1991... 
A group of horseback riders was going through the killing fields at around 6.30 p.m. when they came across the body of another woman. The police were quickly informed, and this area was searched that day into the next. Despite this major development, this news doesn't make the local paper until Tuesday, and even then, it's on page 9. What hmm. makes the front page that day? An article about the origins of crop circles? Hmm, Okay. School curriculum debates, the expansion of a prison hospital unit, and an elderly woman who is visually impaired who is able to play dominoes with the help of her friends. Well, that last part is really cute and heartwarming. But, like, but it, that could have maybe been... On page nine. And yes, this discovery, page, page one. Yeah. At one point for Catherine Casey's book deliver us about these abductions and murders throughout this region. Laura's father, Tim Miller, says, I think politicians and such didn't want people to know what was going on here. And that really feels true to me. Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, who, what politician wants part of their land to be known as the killing fields? Exactly. And particularly, you know, in this area, they're really pushing tourism and development and economic growth. This doesn't mesh well with that. Yeah. The woman found that day becomes known as Janet Doe. She was found about 100 yards away from the other three had been found, except unlike them, she was face down. It took three days to find her skull. Investigators, though, are able to determine that she's like 5'1 to 5'3 and had experienced a lot of trauma prior to her death. She was thought to be around 30 years old and had a top denture plate. She had an overbite. She had at least one severe cavity. Her right sinus hole was nearly covered in bone, and she had at some point broken her cheekbone. It was believed that she was beaten to death about 30 days before she was found. So now when you're saying that she has a lot of trauma prior to her death, is that all like immediately before, or is it like lifelong trauma? Lifelong trauma. Okay. Yeah. It's easy to tell from her skeletal remains that she had been through a lot in her life. So she did not have a nice, nice life. Right. And like Jane Doe, police were unable to identify Janet Doe. They sent her skull to the same artist who had worked on Jane Doe's reconstruction, but that didn't help identify her either. And like Jane Doe, Janet Doe's remains were moved into storage. Now, the other two girls were teenagers. Do we know the ages about of Jane and Janet? Yeah, so Janet is clocked to be a bit older at 30, and Jane was a little bit younger, but in her 20s to 30s. Okay. And so this really feels like a stagnant time in this investigation to me. Laura's father is putting in some work. He actively starts helping other families who are looking for their family members, particularly working local cases that involved missing girls and young women in that same stretch of Texas. In June of 1997, he has Laura's body exhumed. He does this largely because he doesn't trust the investigative process and how things were handled in Haiti, Laura, and Jane Doe's cases. For instance, Jane Doe was shot to death, but the medical examiner's office didn't separate out and preserve the bullet before cleaning her bones, which means the markings on the bullet were compromised. Those markings would have helped identify the gun that killed her if it had ever been found. Then he cites an evidence receipt list that lists a uh, one bag of hair, and though it has Jane Doe's name on it, it includes Laura's identification number on it. He's also concerned that based on a 1989 evidence receipt that it's possible that some of Jane Doe's remains were turned over to the Miller family for burial when they were getting Laura's remains. And it eats at him that there's a possibility that this harming the investigation into the identity of Jane Doe. So they got the remains confused or mixed up or so mixed he, together? Like what? That was his, his primary concern that is there a possibility that Jane Doe is not being identified because he doesn't trust that they've had a good chain of command on these. Do we ever remains? find out whose hair it is? I believe the hair belongs to Jane, but it was... So it's not Laura's. Not Laura's. Okay. Yeah. So this is why he's, like, stressed yeah, like, about it. I don't blame him. And he has her exhumed for a variety of reasons, but, like, one of those is that he firmly believes that finding out what happened to Jane and Janet could help put the pieces together for what happened to his daughter and what happened to Hedy. And two, he knows that there are other families out there experiencing what he has experienced. And he knows that Jane and Janet Doe's families are likely out there searching for them. 
Tim is a central figure in these stories because he's really been the one pushing forward in the nearly 40 years since Laura went missing. In 2000, he founded Texas EquiSearch, which was originally a group of horse-mounted volunteers who helped search for missing persons. And that organization has grown from there. We mentioned them previously in an episode on Kyosha Felix because they helped search for Mickey Shunick, who went missing around the same time as Kyosha. And they also helped search for some other recognizable cases like Natalie Holloway and Kaylee Anthony. And while Texas EquiSearch has been involved in, I believe, over 400 searches, many of them successful, Tim's efforts in the case of identifying either Jane or Janet hit kind of a dead end. So it's not that the investigators are doing nothing at this time. In 1998, they send Jane and Janet's skulls to a reconstruction expert, Lois Gibson, at the Houston Police Department. And in the same year, they erect about 50 billboards in the 11 counties surrounding Harris County, hoping that someone will recognize Jane and Janet. But yet again, this doesn't help identify them. Then in February of 1999, they spend about two days looking for clues in the killing fields. In particular, they're looking at a 300-foot horseshoe-shaped pond near where Janet Doe was found. Tim Miller is there, and he helped them get heavy construction equipment to dig around the area of the pond. But all they found is a blouse made of some heavy material with some lace on it. And meanwhile, Jane and Janet Doe's remains were being held in cardboard boxes inside a mobile storage unit used by the Galveston County Medical Examiner's Office. But their cases didn't seem to be moving forward at all. We'll be back in a moment. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Meanwhile, do they have any, like, suspects on this case? Yeah, there were, or rather are, some suspects in these murders, and investigators, along with the general public, have gone back and forth between whether or not these murders are connected. I can't fully go into, like, the full list of suspects, but I'll sort of cover some of the top ones here, and, of course, referring to them by their initials rather than names. The first is C. C worked as a roofing contractor and lived close to where Laura Miller did. In fact, Her father, Tim, later heard from one of Laura's friends that when she and Laura went for walks, they would purposefully take a longer path to avoid walking near his house because Laura was scared of him. That doesn't seem too good for him. Exactly. Furthermore, on July 29th, 1984, so just a few months after Heidi went missing and a few months before Laura went missing, C was out at the Texas moon. Now, if you remember, that's where Heidi worked. So it is possible he knew or knew of both of these girls. And these are the two girls that were at the convenience store. Yes. 
Okay. So apparently one thing that C loved to do is to go dancing and the Texas moon was the place to go. So yeah, it seems. Mm -hmm. On that night he was there, a woman named Ellen Beeson was also at the Texas moon. She was 29-year-old secretary who was divorced and living at home with her family. And she was at the bar that night specifically for a fundraiser being held for a local family. Okay, now I'm starting to worry because whenever you start talking about one woman in particular, things don't go well. Things are not going well. Oh, no. No. Because Ellen's friend Candy introduced Ellen to her ex-boyfriend, C. Oh, no. Candy and her husband ended up leaving C and Ellen at the Texas Moon together. And Alan and C were last seen sitting at a table together. And that's the last anyone saw Ellen. In the following days, Candy kept asking C where Ellen was when she didn't see her. And she had good reason to be worried. C had been abusive to Candy in the past. Eventually, C said that he would show Candy and drove her out to a ravine off Old Galveston Road near where the Galveston Causeway was. There, he took Candy through basically an area filled with trash to an abandoned couch that had tires stacked on it. He pulled those off and moved the couch, and underneath was Ellen Beeson's body. For real, he actually just brought her there? Yes. She's going to live, right? Candy's okay. Okay. Yes. And he tells Candy, eventually other people, that when he was with Ellen, they left the bar, they went swimming at a swimming hole, and once they got there, she went in and he didn't, and not long after, he says he found her drowned floating in the water. I doubt it. Yeah, his claim is that he started to take her to the hospital, but panicked and brought her to this location where he hid her body under the couch. I don't know if Candy actually believed him, but reports do say that she was scared of him and kept the location of Ellen's body secret for weeks. Finally, she went to authorities and Ellen's body was discovered on July 7th, 1985. It would be terrifying to be told something like this. So, I mean, while everybody could say, oh, I would have gone sooner, how do we know that if we weren't in that position? Yeah, and it sounds like he's someone that she's already scared of. So, right. yeah, and then you find your friend's body. Yeah, it's like, hard to criticize if it took a little while for her to do that. Yeah. I'm glad she came forward. Oh, definitely. But I'm also glad he didn't kill her. Exactly. Because she was alone with him out there. In February of 1986, the county medical examiner, Dr. Korndorfer, testified in C's trial that Ellen's identity was confirmed through dental records, but that the cause of death was unknown. C was convicted for something called abuse of a corpse. I can't imagine that whatever that is is good. Yeah, it's basically like the fact that he left her underneath a couch. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and sentenced to one year and a fine of $2,000. In news articles from this time, it says that C had previously been arrested for the rape of a 14-year-old girl, but the jury had failed to indict him. How is he getting away with all of these things? Like a fine of $2,000 and one year? Yeah, because they couldn't find the cause of death. But he has a known history of... But he wasn't convicted of it. And he got nothing for the rape of a 14-year-old kid? Well, so they failed to indict him, so they didn't move forward charges against him don't you hate it when people get away with stuff like this yeah he is in 2011 following new leads investigators had ellen beeson's body exhumed and her remains sent to the university of north texas to be evaluated now when her remains arrived at the university authorities were surprised by the amount of tissue still left on the bones this should have been cleaned off by the medical examiner in the 1980s when they were trying to establish her cause of death. So did they end up finding anything with her? Yeah, so like once the tissue is removed, it's discovered that Ellen's skull actually had a significant fracture that would have required a lot of force to create. This was overlooked before? Yeah, because they didn't clean the bones. Oh my gosh. Now this is something though that the medical examiner vehemently denies. He says that he did clean off the bones and that the fracture was not there when he looked at them. But there is photographic evidence the bones were photographed still with tissue on them. And that would have helped a lot with his conviction earlier. Right. So they go back and charge him with Ellen's murder in 2013. Okay, good. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but he's let out under supervised parole in 2021. 
Oh, yeah. And while he was in prison, though, there's evidence that he might have confessed to murdering Laura and Heidi. But in Texas, a jailhouse confession can't be used unless that confession is backed up by other evidence. Texas? Yeah, so it's really... Can you trust people in prison okay. together, right? I guess. So, like, you just have to, like, reaffirm that with evidence. I guess it is good in those cases where somebody's, like, coerced into saying something. Coerced or someone's trying to get back at someone and yeah. claims they confessed to something. Okay. In 2022, though, Tim Miller won a wrongful death suit against C in a civil suit case for Laura Miller's death. And that's... C didn't show up for this civil trial. So it was just by? Like, kind of by default. Yeah. Yeah. The second suspect is R. R was a NASA engineer who held key roles in projects like Saturn V, which was one of the most powerful rockets that NASA developed. He retired from NASA and bought a thousand-plus acre ranch in League City. And this property happens to border the Calder Road killing fields. So is he a suspect just by proximity? Partially proximity. Now, like, this ranch is hugely popular. It becomes a massive horse rental stable called the Stardust. It's one of the largest in the region with 65 horses. And he's a suspect for a few reasons. One is that authorities feel like he keeps inserting himself into the investigation by offering to help and asking questions. Okay. So he's just, like, meddling into when they're doing things? Yeah, I guess, but, like... Well, is it... Is it... <laughs> I can't figure out, like, was he being annoying or was he being helpful? Or was he just, like, curious? If, yeah. If murders happened next door to my like, house. Right. Right. Or next door to my business, I would have some questions. Particularly if my industry is tourism-based, there's murderers. Well, then you'd be a suspect, obviously. Obviously. The second is that the FBI develops a profile of the suspect in the killing field's murders. And it includes things like the perpetrator will be highly intelligent and are certainly as a NASA scientist, fits that. They also say that the perpetrator wouldn't have had good relationships with women, and R was divorced three times. Mm. His ex-wives were not exactly enamored with him after the fact, and some of them said that when his horses would die, he would leave them out in the fields like the women had been. Okay, well, I think that's a loose, like, comparison, right? I don't think somebody should leave their horse in the field either, but he's in the habit of leaving horse bodies like this, so he would definitely do that to a human. Right. It's a little jump. It is a leap. Mm -hmm. There are court documents that are filed against him that end up calling him a serial sexual offender and indicate that he had a history of violence. Do we know that for sure? It's in the court document. The right. other guy is also. Yeah. It does enable, though, a search on his house on November 16th, 1993. And when authorities searched his home, they did find newspaper clippings pertaining to the murders. Okay. But again, it's on his land basically. Yeah, like next door. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to think of this guy yet. Yeah. I think it, this one's complicated for me. I have like my own opinions, but like, I do I think that I, I like him all that much? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. But eventually, like basically, they couldn't tie anything definitively to him. For the longest time, Tim Miller believed that R was responsible for Laura's death and the deaths of the other women. And so he would call his house and leave angry messages on his answering machine. But I think even he, over time, his belief that R did it started to fade. Still, a lot of people suspected R, and he said he couldn't even go to the grocery store without getting harassed. Eventually, he decided it wasn't worth it and moved out of League City. In 2005, he drove his golf cart onto some train tracks. Many who knew him said that this was intentional. So he is no longer with us? No. I don't know. Yeah. He better be guilty after all that. Like, because uh, if case. he wasn't, yeah, it's not good. No. I mean, this case is, like, so complicated. And that leads us to one of the other primary suspects, who I'm going to call M. M was a hired hand at R's ranch. He'd been in and out of prison for a variety of reasons over the years and is most recently serving time for aggravated assault and an escape attempt. To various people, M has confessed to, at the very least, the murder of Janet Doe, but he has never actually signed a confession. M says that he drove to Telephone Road where he'd previously picked up women working as sex workers. He said he picked up a teenager and that she offered to have sex with him for $10 to buy crack. He says they smoked crack together, and then she told him her fantasy was to be murdered during sex. 
He says that he then drove them back to Ars property where he beat her in the head with a metal seat belt buckle. After, he left her in the killing field. He says this woman is known as Janet Doe. That's a wild story. That is a wild story. Do we believe this? <sighs> Not fully, no. I feel like, well, there's some things, right? So he says that she's a teenager, mm-hmm. right? All those things. So we're going to push pause on that for a second. Okay. And the reason he says he left her there is because he wanted to get back at R, who had let him go from his job. He basically claims that he felt betrayed by R because he thought he and R were like-minded guys. His claim is that R had also picked up sex workers, that R had killed a sex worker as well, and that the two men were using the killing field to bury bodies of these sex workers. That's quite a claim. Yeah. So if what M says is true, he's indicating that there are other murdered women and that R played a role in some of those murders. It would also mean that the examination of Janet pinpointing her as being older was wrong. And that investigators should have been looking for a teenager that entire time. But also the story doesn't really check out because the two teenage girls that we know of, Hedy and Laura, were not sex workers. Right. So yeah. does it does it seem like there could be several people committing yeah. these crimes and, and leaving these girls here? You know, there has been debate back and forth since the beginning whether or not these cases are a single killer, multiple killers... What's going on exactly? Mm -hmm. There are some differences in Janet Doe, primarily the length of time between her being found and the others. Her body was also not placed in the same way. Okay. Yeah. A lot, though, has changed in the time since Jane and Janet were found in that field. There have been huge advances in technology used to help identify unidentified individuals. Richard Renison was an FBI agent who had previously been a League City police detective in the 1980s. The Calder Road murders had stuck with him, and he contacted League City and urged them to use new technologies to identify who they were. The first was a technique through Parabon Labs. It's called Snapshot DNA Phenotyping. This enables investigators to use genetic traits to create a more accurate renderings of the victims and get a more general sense of their backgrounds and ancestry. Through this, they were able to say that Jane Doe likely had ties to Tennessee and had fair to very fair skin, blue or green eyes, blonde to brown hair, with few to no freckles. She likely would have been between the ages of 22 and 30 when she died. Does that seem like a narrow enough description? Yeah, I do think that the, I you know, I'm fascinated by the snapshot thing, but you know, I've seen my own, you know, through 23andMe, like, results of what my, what I should look like. Yeah. And there's a greater chance of me having brown eyes than blue eyes or gray eyes. Yeah. And I do not have brown eyes. Okay. Right. Right. So, because it does, it sounds really cool. Like, like, wow, how could they do this, you know, just off DNA? But then at the same time, I'm like, that is, like, blonde to brown hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Fair to very fair skin. Like, it's just, we've got, like, quite a broad range happening there. Right. Yeah. They also did this for Janet, though. To revisit this, the suspect, M, again, he claimed that she was a teenager, but the information for Janet placed her between 24 and 34, and that she may have been from Louisiana or had relatives there. Could it be possible there's more bodies out there that we haven't found? I mean, it's possible. Do I necessarily believe that guy? I Keep him in the suspect pool, but... I just yeah. don't really feel like women are out there begging to be murdered. Well, uh, no, I think that story is a story. Mm-hmm. Whether how much his story about him killing other women is concerned, I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. So this, though, League City is pushed to do more and try investigative genetic genealogy... Because that gave them some indication, but not a lot. And that uses DNA to help create family trees in order to help find out who Jane and Janet were. Apparently, they were reluctant at first to do this, but finally they did. And on April 15th, 2019, both Jane and Janet Doe were publicly given their names back at a press conference. So it worked. It worked. Amazing. It worked. And the announcement date is like my birthday date. Aww. Yeah. So... I'm going to start with Jane Doe. She is Audrey Lee Cook. Audrey spent 33 years known as Jane Doe. 
Audrey was born November 25th, 1955 in Memphis, Tennessee. She was living in Texas between 1976 and 1985. Audrey had several different types of jobs while in the Houston area, working as a golf cart mechanic in 1979, for Harrison Equipment Company in about 1980, for Balloon Affair in 1981, and as a mechanic for the National Rent-A-Car at some point. Her family said they last heard from her on December 1985 through a letter. Apparently, this was a common form of communication for her and her family, and sometimes they wired her money when she needed additional financial support. Since her body was found in February 1986, she would have been 30 years old when she was murdered. Both of her parents had died shortly after she disappeared, and her uncle did come to Houston to try to find her when a family member was ill but was unsuccessful. Investigators do say that Audrey was known to sell and use cocaine, but they aren't certain if this played a role in her disappearance or murder. Is that all we know about her? She wasn't married? She didn't have kids or anything like that? There's much more limited information about Audrey. I think that's largely because her her most immediate family members had passed away. Um, So that information is limited. Doesn't sound like there's a lot of people who've come forward to add more to her story. We do know more, though, about the woman who is known as Janet Doe. When investigators first uploaded her information to GenMatch, it was a confusing twist of relatives. They spent a while trying to contact whoever she was connected with in order to see if they had a missing relative. Thankfully, one of the people they contacted was Shira LaPointe, whose father-in-law was connected to Janet Doe. It just so happens that Shira is a genealogist who had been working to connect adoptees with their birth families. At the time she was contacted, she had successfully connected 60 adoptees, so she jumped right in to this. She's well-practiced in this, then. Yeah, so they actually were able to connect with someone who has skills, right? Mm-hmm. Shira said, though, that she worked countless hours trying to connect Janet Doe to her father-in-law's family. She says that Cajun genealogy is particularly tricky because you'll have larger families that kind of intermarry with one another. Okay. And she narrowed it down to a few potential branches that had moved from Louisiana to Texas, but it was proving difficult to pinpoint more. Finally, investigators were given the go-ahead to upload Janet Doe's DNA to family tree DNA, where the DNA got a close match to a first cousin. From there, it was really easy to find her sister. Finally, Donna Prudhomme was given her name back. Donna was born Donna Gonsolin on April 23rd, 1957, and she lived with her family in Port Arthur, Texas. Donna was married to her high school sweetheart, Daryl, as a teenager and moved to where his family was in Ville Platte. They had two sons together. Like Donna's father, Daryl drank a lot, and when he did, he often became violent. Donna's sister remembers seeing her in the hospital at one point with a broken eye socket and covered in stitches. Eventually, for her and her kids' safety, Donna left her husband and moved to Austin. And this was the woman that was found that had a history of abuse? Yep. So it was from her husband. Yeah. So it was definitely a a violent relationship. That's why she went to Austin. Like, she's just scared of him, right? Yeah. Apparently, she struggled hard while she was in Austin. She had a substance abuse issue, and she knew she needed to do something else for her kids. So after two years in Austin, she brought her kids to her former mother-in-law's house and moved to Houston area, hoping to get her life back on track. Her last mailing address was on the Bay Area Boulevard in Clear Lake, which is a southern suburb of Houston and near League City. During her last conversation with her sister, Donna mentioned a trip to Mexico. So when her sister didn't hear back from her, she assumed that's where Donna was. But by 1992, when she still hadn't heard from her, her sister attempted to file a missing persons report with the Port Arthur police, and it doesn't seem like one was recorded. Donna's sister says that her two sons always wondered what happened to their mom. One of her sons was in a nursing home after a bad car accident, and her sister says that every time he saw her, he would ask her where his mama was. Oh no. Yeah. And he passed away before knowing what happened to his mom. Was he an adult when he had the car accident? Yeah. Oh. There's a lot here about the violence that Donna experienced before her murder and actually the murder itself. So I just want to leave a bit of what people have said about her. As a child and young woman, she loved going crabbing on Pleasure Island, and she would also stay up all night watching the sunset and then the sunrise. Apparently, she loved Janice Joplin and would often belt out some Joplin tunes. 
Her sister says, Donna was the life of the room when she walked in. On the killing fields, there's now four crosses to memorialize Donna, Audrey, Edie and Laura. And there's now a church on the property as well where a memorial service was held soon after Donna and Audrey were identified. When I first heard about Donna and Audrey, they had been known as Jane and Janet for most of my life. And when I wrote a poem in honor of them in my book, I didn't like at the time even conceive of how genealogy would be used to give them their names back. But like, where does that bring us now? Tim Miller's, he's Laura's dad and He'd long hoped for the day Donna and Audrey's families would have answers. And he'd also hoped that identifying them would help solve the murder of his daughter and Hedy's murder. But we're now entering the fifth year since they were named, and the mystery of who murdered these women still hasn't been solved. So we're no closer than we were before? No. So what the FBI and police need now is more information about Donna and Audrey in their last months alive. If anyone has any information about them that they can share, no matter how mundane you might think it might be, please contact authorities and we'll have those numbers on our social media posts and on our website. I hope this is the year that all of those families finally get justice. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, The Killing Field, read by Brianna Evigan. Brianna has been on a quest to give a voice to the voiceless, shine a light on darkness, and create a positive impact. She co-founded Move Me Studio, a woman-led production company creating inspiring media that compels action. Brianna has a successful career in film, TV, music, and dance. Her first foray into Hollywood was everyone's favorite dance film, Step It Up 2, The Streets, and the reinstallment Step It Up 5, All In. Her TV career includes starring in From Dusk Till Dawn, Trooper, and Longmire. The Killing Field, Unidentified Woman, discovered September 8, 1991, Calder Road, League City, Texas. I once held a raw oyster in my mouth, its three-chambered heart fluttering against my tongue. My tongue once knew a thousand words, the shape of sound. That night before he plucked me from the sidewalk, I walked from the payphone, extra change slinking around my pockets. That night was magnolias, the air hemmed in by their scent. In the back of his van, I counted the ways out, the number of doors, the number of windows, all closed to me. The windows held the world, that other place. I scraped my knees, bled into the ground there in the lot. The lot was earth and oil, tin cans and rope. The heat of his body refracted off my skin, skimmed the trees in half-darkness. My skin, a mirror, reflecting moonlight and the sucked light of the stars. Still beneath a tree, my hands folded into a cross, a sign of prayer. My hands a dove. There my body lay fallow. There my body lay. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. 
a camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.